Uh, our brother, Casey Croy, is going to preach for us. If you've never met Casey, I met him today, <laughs> at least formally. And I'll tell you why I would have someone who I just met come and preach for us, because that is not common, right? Uh, one would be the Wallaces. Uh, the Wallaces have, have uh, talked about to, to Casey and to um, his wife, Autumn, about the ministry that they have coming up here in Brazil that they're planning for. Um, and so I trust the Wallaces very much. So that was uh, one vote in your favor, Casey. Um, also, I know Autumn. Uh, some of us know Autumn. Sarah Elizabeth and others have met Autumn. Autumn serves at our coffee ESL program and has been faithful there for probably a long time. Yeah, <laughs> probably years at this point. And so I know Autumn, and uh, that's encouraging. And I also know the ministry that Casey is going with, which is Training Leaders International. Um, I don't know if they would say this, but it feels like a sister organization of what Word Partners does. Uh, and so uh, trust them very well. Actually, I know some folks who formerly were with partners that are now serving with uh, Training Leaders International. And so that was another vote, and also just God's sovereignty in us, in me personally, needing someone to fill the pulpit. So I'm excited to hear from Casey uh, in talking with him. I know he's got our same heart of love for the scriptures and of walking through them. And I said, would you preach Titus 3? Because that's what we were hoping someone would preach on. And he said, sure, let's go for it. So uh, Casey, would you come and open God's word for us? Why don't we give him a welcome? I, don't, I know we don't normally do that, but let's give Casey a round of applause. <laughs> All right, Andy, thank you for that welcome. It's much appreciated. Um, I'd like to just tell you just real quickly just a little bit about myself because I know that you know, you're listen, you've come to listen to me preach God's Word this morning, and uh, it's good to know a little bit about the guy that's uh, preaching God's Word to you. So Andy shared a little bit about uh, my, uh, me and my wife and uh, uh, just touched on what we're planning to go do uh, in the future. Uh, I thought it was two things that I'd share with you just real quick, uh, just so you can feel a little bit of kinship and bond with me. Number one is I absolutely love God's Word. I love to study it. I love to teach it. Uh, I love to proclaim it uh, in the midst of a church body. Second love that I have is missions. I love missions. I love the thought of the glory of God being taken to the ends of the earth. Uh, for the sake of his increasing glory, okay? And so those two things, we're going to talk about this in a little bit more. Uh, these two loves that I've had uh, have combined themselves in a unique way in my life. Uh, that's going to lead us to some, uh, to, do some, uh, to some unique places and to do some unique things. And I'm excited to share more about that with you guys later. Before we get into God's word, I'd like to just have a moment of prayer. Go with me to the Lord. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to teach your word, Father. I thank you, Father, um, just for the blessing uh, of your word, Lord, and for how it encourages us, rebukes us, instructs us, Lord. Father, I must admit that there were many times this week as I was preparing this message, I sat down and said, I don't feel much like a preacher, Father. Uh, I struggle to understand the the deep riches of your word, Father. I struggle to understand how best to communicate them to others, Father. But, Father, none of that matters, Father, because what I'm doing here, Father, is bringing a meager, sacrificial offering, Father. 
And Father, in your hands, Father, that is, you're able to take that, Father, and multiply it for your glory, Father. And so I pray that you have done that with the preparation that I've put into this sermon, Father. Lord, uh, I pray, Father, that you would do that by allowing your Holy Spirit, Father, to speak within the uh, ears and in the hearts of the people that are going to be listening to my words over the next few months, Father. And I pray, Father, that an awesome work of God would be done through your word and the proclamation of it. It's your name that I pray. Amen. So today is, uh, today's theme is assurance of forgiveness in your church. I want to ask you uh, uh, at the opening to do a favor for me, okay? Uh, I'm showing up here and I'm asking for favors already. I know that uh, that doesn't always bode well. You had not seen nothing yet. Wait till you see later. But nevertheless, I have a favor that I want to ask of you. So uh, as I was preparing this sermon uh, and going through the uh, and thinking, sorting out my thoughts and thinking about the theme of assurance of forgiveness, as I was writing this down and typing up my notes, I must have written assurance of salvation 800 times this weekend and had to backspace it out and put, no, no, assurance of forgiveness. And so I know that it's going to come out when I'm speaking to you this afternoon. So I want you to do me a favor and go ahead and do like a mental note in your head. If Casey ever says assurance of salvation through the course of this sermon, he means assurance of forgiveness, okay? Go ahead and do that favor for me. I think it'll be a blessing for you. Uh, and I would appreciate your grace in that. Assurance of a salvation is a wonderful thing, right? But we're here to talk about the assurance of forgiveness today, right? So in thinking about the assurance of forgiveness, I thought that I would open up this, uh, this afternoon by sharing a recent experience I had with forgiveness. A couple weeks ago, I go to Fisherville Baptist Church, which is a, a church just on the outside of the Beltline here near Louisville. Uh, I go to Fisherville Baptist Church, and I'm a deacon there. And a few weeks ago, I noticed uh, I have, by the way, I have uh, two kids. Uh, well, I have three kids. Two of them are older, and then I have Aiden, uh, who's back in the nursery, and then we have another kid on the way. And so uh, my tr um, family is very much involved in the children's ministry at Fisherville Baptist. And a few weeks ago, I noticed an issue with the children's ministry at Fisherville Baptist Church. And it wasn't like a major thing, but it was something that I knew that we needed to address and get a better handle on as a congregation. And so at our deacons meeting, after I noticed this issue the next time, I brought this issue to the forefront. And most people would uh, step back and realize, yeah, that's something that we need to address. But there was a problem. And the problem was this. I saw this issue in our children's ministry, and I brought it up to the at the deacons meeting, but one thing I failed to do was actually bring it up to our children's minister beforehand. And he was in the meeting, and he was pretty much taken completely aback that there was this issue. A uh, couple days went by, and uh, God began to convict my heart. You know what? At, at the very best, what you did was inconsiderate to the children's minister there, and you need to apologize. What you did was uh, in the right spirit, but it was not handled properly, right? And so uh, next time I saw our, children, our children's minister there at Fisherville Baptist Church, I came to him and said, Brother, I'm completely sorry. I was in the wrong. Uh, you deserve to be uh, told about that before I brought it up to this, uh, to the board, to our deacon board, and I'm sorry. 
and he just kind of smiled and he said, Casey, I'll be honest with you, I, I, I was taking it back and at, at first I was a little bit upset and then he said, first of all, I started giving you the benefit of the doubt almost right away and he said, I knew that Casey has the best uh, intentions at heart for our ministry and he just said, Casey, I, as soon as I realized that, um, I forgave you in my heart. And so I was able to just recently receive this forgiveness from another brother in Christ. And it's a wonderful thing, right? Our children's minister is a wonderful man of God there at that church. And me and him have a wonderful fellowship together. And I'm so glad that even though I messed up and was, uh, like I said, at the very least inconsiderate of his feelings and how he would handle that situation, um, that didn't come between us, right? I received forgiveness from him. But that doesn't always happen, does it? I want to ask you to put on your imagination caps for a minute and to imagine with me. Can you think of a time when you uh, did something to offend someone else or you did something that you needed to ask forgiveness for and you went to the person and asked forgiveness, but the relationship never was quite the same, right? There was always an awkwardness between the two of you for the rest of the time that you've known each other. And there was always that wondering in the back of your mind, okay, I asked for forgiveness, but did I actually get forgiveness? As wonderful as forgiveness is to receive, it is that much more worse to actually wonder if you did receive it, right? And here's the next step that I want you to make. I want you to take that wondering if you have been forgiven and instead of applying it to another brother and sister in Christ or to another person, I want you to think of it and apply it in terms of God. What if you had to live your entire life wondering if you had been forgiven for your sins by our almighty and holy God? That's something that I could not live with, right? And so that's what we're going to talk about in our uh, scripture this morning, Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. We're going to talk about some ways that we can uh, understand and know that we have forgiveness from our holy God. Before we get into our passage this morning, I want to do two things. Number one, I want to talk about the structure of the passage. And number two, I want to just take a minute to set the passage in its proper context, okay? So let's think about the structure of Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Uh, this has already been read for us today, but I'd like to just go ahead and read it again. It's, it's not a long text, and so I think it would be good for us to start out by reading it. This is the letter of Paul to his missionary uh, partner, Titus, who he had left in Crete. In chapter 3, it says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope 
of eternal life. So let's think about the structure of this passage real quick. I, I think if you're familiar with your Bibles, there's a little bit about the structure of this passage that might strike you as odd at first, right? Let's think about the structure of this passage. It starts out with a series of commands, doesn't it? Paul is writing Titus and telling Titus to, you need to remind them to be this and to be this and to be this, right? Verses 1 through 2 of our passage start out with a series of commands. And then Paul moves on to a, to a need, right? He's talking about how we were before we knew Christ in our lives. And then he finally moves on into the gospel, right? He's saying, this is what our hope is. This is, why, uh, this is what meets our need. So think about that for a moment, all right? Think about the structure. It goes commands, need, gospel, right? That structure is a little bit odd, isn't it? Let's think about some of our other passages. Let's think about another passage that we already read this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, okay? How does that passage begin? You were once dead in your trespasses and forgiveness. That's a need, right? Your need is you are dead in your trespasses and sin. What does it go to then? It goes to the gospel, right? But God, being rich in mercy, offered his son as a sacrifice for our sin. And then it goes into command, right? Uh, God uh, saved us in order to make us his workmen, right? To do good works for his name. And so the structure of that passage is actually um, need, gospel, command, right? That's a lot different than what we see in Titus chapter 3, right? Let's think about uh, some letters as a whole. Let's think about the letter to the church in, in Rome that Paul wrote. The book of Romans in our Bibles starts out with the gospel and theology, right? The first 11 chapters are a large exposition of the gospel and uh, of Paul's theology that he is giving to the Roman church. And then after he has given them the gospel, what does he do? He gives them the command, doesn't he? And so there we see the gospel and the need kind of wrapped up in one, and then we see uh, a command given. Or think about the book of Ephesians that we were just in. Paul starts out with a need, right? We see that need in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, and we see the gospel. And then the second half of that epistle, though, is what? It's filled up with commands, isn't it? Paul is saying, based on what I told you in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, they didn't know about the chapter numbers and verses back then, but nevertheless, based on what I've written in the first half of this book, let me give you some commands to follow in the second half of the book that are based in that. And so in Titus chapter 3, we see something that's a little bit abnormal, right? Because let me tell you something. I think the structure of passages like Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 10, and the structure of the book of Romans and Ephesians is important, right? Because the gospel doesn't start with commands, right? The gospel is not first and foremost about what we do. It's about what God has done for us, right? And it meets us in our needs. We receive the gospel. And then out of the gospel, we are encouraged to do good works. I think that structure is very intentional. But we don't see that followed here in Titus chapter 3. What do we see? We see a command, need, gospel. But... Even though the structure is a little bit different, I think the theology behind it's the same. Let's look at uh, verse 3 real quickly. For we ourselves were once 
foolish, right? Do you see the timeline beginning here? Once you were foolish and all these other list of things, right? That's a need. Let's jump down to verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. This is the beginning of the gospel, right? And so we see that a timeline is actually being created of need, gospel, command, even though that doesn't fit exactly the structure of the passage that we have going here. And I think that's important for us to see. The structure of Titus 3, 1 through 7, might be a little bit different than what we're used to seeing in a book like Ephesians or in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10, but the theology is still the same, right? It starts with our need, goes to the gospel, and then we see the commands. One last thing that I want to do before we jump into the text is discuss the context of this passage. So we're starting our sermon in Titus chapter 3. Let's go back to Titus chapter 2 and look at verses 11 through 15 before we get started. These verses say, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us for all the lo- from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works." Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And so the key part of this context that I want us to grasp, grab hold to is in verse 13 of Titus chapter 2. That verse says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of uh, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, one interesting thing about that is this one of the only six times, I think, in the New Testament where Jesus is actually specifically referred to as God himself. That's one interesting note about that verse. But the context that it creates for our passage is that we are waiting for the return of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is what we are to do as we wait. Let's get into our text. Our text begins today. Well, before I get into our text, I want to quickly just give you an outline. So a couple, real simple outline. Uh, We're going to talk about the mission, okay? And that's going to be verses 1 through 2 in our text. Then we're going to talk about the past. That's going to be verse 3 in our text. And then we're going to talk about the, number 3, the gospel. That's going to be verses 4 through 7 in our text. So let's start with number 1, the mission, okay? So this verse starts out, remind them. Okay, so Paul's wanting Titus to remind his people that he's ministering to of something. How many of you ever need to be reminded of anything, right? Okay, I I know I do. So uh, that's a cue right away for us to start paying attention, right? Because we're getting reminded of some things that we're going to need to hear. So what does Paul want them to be reminded of? Well, he gives them a, he gives Titus a list of seven commands, right? Uh, If you were to go through verses 1 through 2 and count them up, uh, at least when I counted them up, there are seven commands that Titus is giving to Paul. And he's saying, I want you to remind your people to be these things, okay? And as I was thinking about how to best go through these, we're not going to have time to go through each and every one of them, but I want to address at least two uh, for us this morning. The first one that I wanted to address is that very first one, to remind them to 
be submissive, okay? Be submissive. There's something about being submissive that I just don't like. Is anybody here like that? There, we hear this word submit and it just kind of starts to make the hair on the back of our neck stand up and be like, what am I going to be submissive to, right? As I was thinking about being submissive, a um, couple things were, occur uh, were recalled to my mind. Number one was an experience my brother had uh, in China several years ago. Uh, my brother, um, uh, he's not a preacher or a theologian or uh, never even been to seminary, but he was taken uh, by the pastor of his church over to China in order to do a training for Chinese pastors. And one of the things they did in their training of Chinese pastors was to take them through the book of Titus. And so my brothers told me that he was in a small group of pastors and they had finally gotten to Titus 3 and he knew this was coming and he had to read to these Chinese pastors, remind them to be submissive to the authorities that are placed above them. And he's saying, he, said, he told me that gave him great pause because he knew the trials and the tribulations that these pastors were going through in their ministry context. He knew that he was telling these pastors to submit to a government that was very hostile to them and to their ministry. And in fact, if they even found out that they were in this training, um, they would all be in very big trouble. That My brother would have been kicked out and uh, um, we don't know what would have happened to the, to the ministers that he was going. And so my brother said he had a little pause when he was training them and he said, uh, he asked uh, the group that he was leading, what do you guys think this means? He said he was blown away. One of the guys just stood up and says, this means we submit to the authorities that are over us. We submit to the people who are hostile to our faith because these are the authorities that God has placed over us. We submit until the point where we're asked to choose between submitting to them and submitting to God. And whenever that point gets there, we have to follow the example of the apostles. We have to say, it's not whether, um, we have to say, when we have to choose whether we're going to follow man or God, we must follow God. But until we reach that point, we submit to the authorities that are placed over us. Another thing that I was thinking about as I was thinking of submitting to the authorities that are placed over us is just the recent pandemic that we've been through, right? We learned a lot of things through COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic, but one of the things that I think that we learned is that we have a problem with submitting to authority in our culture, right? Wouldn't you agree with that? There is a deep, deep resentment of authority when we're asked to do things that we do not want to do. And I felt like that was just broadcasted uh, as clear as could be uh, during the midst of this pandemic. One more thing as I was thinking about uh, as we were thinking about submission and our need for it, is just the connection between, and this is the, really the importance of why I think Paul is asking uh, Titus to remind his people to submit, it's this, there is a connection between submitting to the government authorities that God has placed over you and submitting to the authority within the church and ultimately to God himself, right? Now, some of y'all might hear me say that, and you might be taken aback and thinking, wait a minute, I, I, I'm perfectly fine with submitting to God, and I'm perfectly fine with submitting to the authorities in my church, but that doesn't mean that I have to necessarily, or I'm going to have a uh, 
or if I have a problem with submitting to the authorities that have been placed over me, that I'll have a problem with submitting to, uh, to God and to my church. Well, I actually think if we look at what the Apostle Paul says, he sees a connection between these two. Let's think about the last verse of chapter 2 real quick. Paul says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And so we see Titus chapter 2 ending with Paul telling Titus, I want you to, um, to declare and rebuke with authority. In the very next verse, we see Paul telling Titus, remind them to submit to all the authorities that are placed over them. Paul puts these two right next to each other, and I think that's on purpose. Paul is wanting us to know that there is a connection between submitting to the government uh, authorities that are pl have been placed over you by the providence of God and actually submitting to God himself. There's a deep connection there, and if you don't like submitting to one, you're not going to like submitting to the other. Let's keep going. Uh, that was the first thing that Paul was uh, asked Titus to remind uh, his people of. Second thing I want to do is just the, the look at is just the last pair. Uh, the last pair that Paul asked uh, uh, Titus to remind him of is simply uh, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy. Okay, so to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy. Now, of course, the Paul originally wrote the letter to Titus in the Greek language, right? Um, Paul didn't write in English, he wrote in Greek, and then it was translated for us into English later. Uh, and we have lots of different kinds of translations. The one that I'm preaching through is the ESV. And they give a very standard uh, translation of these two uh, things that Paul is asking Titus to remind his people of, uh, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy. But there are some things that I don't quite like about this translation that's being offered up to us. Now, before we go any further, I just want to say, let's stop here for a minute. You hear me critiquing the English Standard Version, right? Uh, and some of you might think, well, what's this guy doing just critiquing the translation that he's preaching from and that many of you are reading from? And one thing that I just want you to be aware of is, yes, I am critiquing the translation here a little bit, but I want you to be rest assured this translation and many other translations have corrected my understanding of the Greek text way more than I'm ever going to uh, correct their understanding of the Greek text, okay? And so the difference is I'm just not going to broadcast those to you, okay? But know that in the back of your minds as we go down this road. So the word, the Greek word the lying underneath this word gentle is actually the word epiakes. I looked it up in the Greek dictionary that I have available to me, and it has this kind of definition for it. Not insisting on every right of letter of law or custom. Okay? Not insisting on every right of letter or law of law or custom. The second thing, the second word that we have here is courtesy. It translate the, translates the Greek word prautes, which is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own importance. Now, why do I want to draw this to your attention. I think, it, I think that the translation that we have does a good job of rendering this, but translations can't perfectly give us what the original is saying. I think an important thing that this translation is uh, leaving out is the sense of self-denial and self-humility, uh, right? I don't know that that's 
perfectly uh, captured in the words gentle and perfect courtesy, but I think that they are very clearly in these words in the original text, epiakes and praeutes, right? Uh, the first is not insisting on every right or letter of the law or custom. That basically means if, if you have a right, if you're entitled to something, you're the kind of person who is willing to say, you know what, that might be my right, but I'm willing to lay aside my right for the, better, uh, for the good of other people. The second, thing, the second word was just a quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance, right? Well, that's very clearly a, a sense of self-denial, right? I'm not elevating my own self or my own stature, but uh, I'm willing to just accept a role of humil humility. And Paul is writing to Titus and saying, you need to tell the people that you're in charge of to, to be like that, okay? And I want you to keep these things in mind as we, uh, as we go forward in the text. So the last thing that I want to do uh, for, this fir for the first two verses is talk about the title that I gave him. Do you remember the title that I gave you? As, uh, as we started this sermon for these first two verses, it was mission, right? So a couple of you, if you're an astute Bible student, you might be thinking, you know what, Casey, I, I don't see mission anywhere in these list of commands. What, what in the world are you talking about? I mean, I, how are you pulling mission out of this? Well, this is one of the most fascinating things that I found as I was uh, studying God's Word uh, in order to present it to you. Uh, I didn't start out with the title of mission, but it just occurred to me, this is exactly what's going on here. Uh, I'm following a, a scholar by the name of Philip Towner in order to get here, and so I'm just going to briefly kind of outline some of the things that, that he said. So when we read Titus 3, verses 1 through 2, what we're actually reading is something called a household code uh, that ancient readers would have picked up on and been familiar with. It's a household code household code. Now, what exactly am I talking about there? Well, a household code was just simply a, a series of rules or, or regulations that would govern a house and often a larger community. This was a set of, a series of uh, commands that everybody would realize, hey, I better, I've got part of being part of this community is I stay in line with these requirements, okay? And the interesting thing about household codes is this, in Jewish context, they actually developed in exile, right? And so the people of Israel in the Old Testament were, uh, fell into great sin and idolatry and were exiled out of the nation of Israel. And while they were in exile, they knew that they need something to hold their communities together. And so they developed these household codes, which was, which was rules and regulations for existing in this foreign community. And so these household codes developed in exile, and we see them alluded to in verses like Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 7. You don't have to turn there, but listen to what's said here. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And so we see a command, we see a command to pray for the city that you have been exiled to. Why? in order to seek its benefit, right? And so we see this great and awesome connection between household codes and mission, right? Because in these Jewish communities in, in exile, they were given a code to follow, and that code was you don't resist the, the authorities of the cities that you have found yourself. What you do is you pray for them, 
and you pray for their spiritual maturity and you pray for them for their prosperity, right? And so we see this interesting connection between a household code, which is what we have in Titus 3, 1 through 2, and mission. And here's where it really hits home in our, in our text today. Paul is writing to Titus and he is giving them this uh, household code in the New Testament. And what he is essentially telling them is, Titus, you are leading a group of people who are in exile, right? This is not our home, is what Paul is telling them. What you are doing is leading a specific community, and you're having them obey and to follow these rules. And what are these rules like? Well, they're all generated around the community, right? If they follow all of these rules through, they are going to be a blessing to the community, right? They are going, the community, the wider community that they're a part of are going to look at Christians and be like, you know what? These Christians have something about them and their character that I want to be like. And so this household code, this list of commands, be this as you exist in this foreign society, is missional in nature. I wanted to follow, uh, conclude this little point just uh, by reading what the scholar I was reading, Philip Towner, says. Thus, Christian life in the world is to present a vivid contrast to the criticized Cretan image. That's where Titus was. In the civic arena, Christians are to be as responsible as the best citizens. Where believers more generally come into contact with other people, they are to embody the highest ideal of human virtue as they imitate the pattern of behavior embodied by Christ himself. And so that's what Paul is telling Titus to have the people under his charge do in Titus 3, 1 through 2. He is basically telling them, I want you to imitate Christ in every way possible so that when the people that you are exiles among see you, they are attracted to Christ himself, right? That's missions, right? And there's a wonderful connection with missions in our text. Let's move on to our second point. Our second point is just verse 3, and the word that I gave you was simply the past, right? Paul's going to describe our past and what we were like. And so Paul gives nine descriptions uh, of what we were like in our past life before we were influenced by the gospel. And the key for understanding these nine descriptions is this. In our past life, we were people who removed God from being the center of existence and replace ourselves at the center of existence, okay? If you want to understand Titus chapter 3, verse 4, or verse 3, that phrase is, the, uh, that idea is at the center of it. We have, in our past, we were people who removed God as the center of existence and we replaced it, God with ourselves. So how do we see this coming about? Well, let's read our text. It begins with, for we ourselves were once Foolish, disobedient, led astray. What occurs to me as I was reading this, all three of these uh, things that Paul starts with, foolish, disobedient, and led astray, they all assume a sinner, right? If there was no sinner, if there was uh, no sinner of what wisdom was, how would you know what it meant to be foolish, right? If there was no center, if there was no standard, how would you know what it was to be disobedient, right? If there was uh, no sinner, how would you know if you were being led astray of it from it, right? And so these first three things that Paul says, they all assume a certain sinner. 
And what happens when we take God and we remove him from that center and we place ourselves there? We can't tell if we are acting with wisdom or in with foolishness. We can't tell whether we're acting in obedience or disobedience. We can't tell if we are going the right path or whether we are being led astray. When we place ourselves in the center uh, of, uh, of the reality of existence, we have no uh, concept of um, how to actually follow God or how to actually live uh, in the world that God has created, right? I was thinking of an illustration for this, and I thought of Copernicus. Copernicus was the guy who uh, theorized that the earth wasn't actually the center of the solar system, but the sun was. Have any of you actually seen a model of how astronomers before the time of Copernicus understood the workings of the solar system? It is bizarre, right? We see the solar system, we think, okay, sun, center, circles spreading out from it that all the planets revolve around on. We wouldn't have anything like that without Copernicus. Before him, we had like these half semicircles that the planets went on. Some of them spun around like that as they were revolving around the uh, revolving around the earth. The sun made a complete lap around the earth and everything was just complicated and messed up, right? Why? Because we didn't have the right center. Once we understood that the sun was the center of the universe and not the earth, everything else began to fall into alignment. And that's what Paul is telling us in this passage is that before we uh, encountered Christ and before we understood the gospel, before when we removed God from the center and placed ourselves at the center, everything about life was messed up, right? And it was, none of it made sense. And we were all these things. We were foolish, disobedient, and led astray. So what did, the, what did taking God from the center and put our, uh, placing ourselves lead to? Well, it led us to the next part of verse 3. It led us to be slaves to various passions and pleasures. Because here's the thing, when you're the center of reality, when you're the center of the universe, what are you going to follow? How are you going to live your life? You're going to live your life by doing what you want to do, right? If you have a desire, you're going to seek to meet that desire no matter what else uh, the cost is. If there's a pleasure out there that you want, you're going to try and go and find and capture that pleasure and have it for yourself, right? And so we think that uh, one of the ways that we define freedom is the be, uh, ability to be able to do these things, right? To do the things that we find happiness in and to bring us joy, right? But what we actually see uh, in Paul uh, when he's talking to Titus here is that that's not actually real freedom at all, right? What this actually is is an enslavement of us, right? We're not free when we uh, place ourselves at the center of existence. We're actually enslaved to our own passions and our own desires, right? True freedom is actually putting God back at the center here. And so what is the ultimate end for all this that Paul is talking about? Well, we read that in the last part of verse 3. Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Okay? So where does replacing God at the center of existence and placing ourselves there, what does that lead to? It doesn't lead to anything but bitterness and disappointment and hatred, right? This is the end result of the life that we were living before we encountered Jesus Christ and the gospel, right? Let's move on to our last bit of text here. This is the last four verses. 
And as we started out this sermon, this is the, our theme for, the, for this Sunday is the assurance of forgiveness. And as we get to these, these last four verses, this is actually the, the main event of this passage, right? This is the part of this passage that we are just drawn to, right? And why is that? Because it's the gospel, right? We see the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed in here, and we're actually going to study this part of the passage by thinking of how does this show us the assurance that we need to find forgiveness. So as I was studying this, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to have a point here of this is how we have assurance uh, for forgiveness. And then as I was reading through there, I actually began to thought, you know what, there's, there's at least two reasons that we have assurance of forgiveness. And as I continued to study and study and study, I eventually came to find out there's like 30 reasons that we should have assurance of forgiveness in this passage, right? And we're going to just touch on every one of them here, right? No, we're actually not going to do that. But what we are going to do is talk about seven reasons that we have assurance of forgiveness. Um, these are going to be quick things that I'm going to give to you, so get ready for them. Number one, found in verse four, uh, the reason that we can have uh, assurance of salvation is that we uh, is that we have received the goodness and the loving kindness of God. Right? That gives us assurance of forgiveness. Right? How did verse three end in our passage? And it ended with hate, right? We were hated by others, and we hated other people, right? Well, when we receive the gospel, when we receive forgiveness in God, God replaces that hate that characterized our life and replaces it with goodness and loving kindness. If you have goodness and loving kindness in your life, that is an assurance that you have been forgiven of God. Number two, God is actually our Savior, right? This is another assurance of forgiveness. You know, it's, the Bible is amazing. I, I, don't, I think it's the least human book that could have ever been written, even though that it was definitely written by a human. It was also written by God, right? And here's the thing. I don't think any human could have actually come up with this kind of stuff on his own, right? God is our Savior, right? If humans had written this, we'd have all kinds of saviors, but none of them would be God, Right? And so I think the fact that we understand God to be our Savior gives us assurance of salvation. Let's think of number three. Number three is not because of works done by us in righteousness. We can have assurance of salvation because we are not saved by our own good works. That is fantastic news, right? What would be the case if you were saved by your own righteous deeds? Could you ever have assurance of forgiveness in your life? Absolutely not, right? I mean, your assurance of forgiveness would be as fragile as your, uh, as your next bad act, right? There would be no assurance of forgiveness if our salvation rested on our own good deeds. Let's think of number four. Number four is according to his mercy, right? And so we have assurance of our forgiveness because we have the mercy of God given to us in life. God is a merciful, forgiving God. He judges humanity and he judges the earth. He will come in judgment, but in that judgment, those who found, find themselves in Christ are going to receive his mercy. And our forgiveness is as sure as the mercy, mercies of God. 
Number five, we have assurance of forgiveness because we have the washing of regeneration. Or we, have the, we can be assured of our forgiveness because of the work of the Holy Spirit. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? It is the washing of regeneration and the, uh, and the renewal. Um, Paul goes on to describe the Holy Spirit in this passage as being poured out. This is actually an allusion to several other biblical texts. This is an allusion to the book of Joel, uh, chapter 2, verses 28 or 32, when Joel looks forward and uh, into the future and he says there's going to come a day when God is going to pour out his Holy Spirit upon his people and they are going to be forgiven for the sin that I'm about to send them into exile for. This is actually the text, Joel chapter 2 is actually the text Peter uses in his sermon in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and he actually says what was prophesied in Joel chapter 2 has actually come to fruition in our days, Right? The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us. And so that's an assurance of uh, forgiveness on our part. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on us and is doing a work in our lives, and that gives us assurance of forgiveness. Number six is the simple phrase in verse seven, being justified. What is being justified? That is being, uh, that is God declaring you to be just declaring you to be righteous now how is that a an assurance of forgiveness do you think god would declare you to be just if he had not forgiven you of your sin and so our assurance of forgiveness rests on the uh on the character of a uh, uh, of, of the on the character of a true and loving god right our our, our assurance of forgiveness rests on God's character, not on ours. And the last one is uh, we, have been, we have become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We can be assured of forgiveness, of our forgiveness, because we have become heirs, right? God has taken us from uh, orphaned, exiled, rebellious children and made and adopted us into his family and made us heirs this is the greatest sign of forgiveness that or assurance of forgiveness that we could actually ever have right god has adopted us into our family i began this sermon by discussing uh my my children's minister offering me forgiveness for a wrong that i've done but you know what my children's minister did not adopt me into his family did he Nah. but you know what God, when we receive the forgiveness of our sins, he adopts us into his family and makes us brothers with Christ and heirs to the goodness and mercies of God. That is an assurance of forgiveness. And so as we went through Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we began looking at the, the mission in verses 1 through 2. Then we considered the past in verse 3. And then we considered the assurances that we have of forgiveness in the gospel. And that's what we need to leave and go out of here with is the gospel, right? And the assurance that we have in forgiveness in it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the marvelous depths of your word, Father, and how it speaks to us, Father, in ways that we might never expect or might not ever anticipate in ourselves, Father. Lord, uh, I thank you, Father, for the assurance of forgiveness that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ, Father. 
I thank you, Father, that our forgiveness does not rest on our own efforts and what we are able to accomplish, but is it rests in what your Son has already accomplished on our behalf, Father. I thank you, Father, that the assurance of our forgiveness, Father, rests in your character and not in ours, Lord. And I, Father, thank you, Father, for the assurance of uh, forgiveness that we are able to receive from you. Father, without that, Father, I do not know how that we would uh, face the, the days that are coming ahead, Father, wondering, Father, whether or not that we have been forgiving and uh, forgiven by you. What a marvelous and wonderful grace that you have given us. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.